Chapter 2. What is Singing? Continued. At an early point in his public career, the writer enjoyed the privilege of visiting the United States of America in a professional capacity. During this and subsequent visits, he learned many valuable lessons. But he discovered that some, not all, transatlantic writers sought to demonstrate that the art of bel canto was concerned with mere prettiness of voice. To use the term beauty of voice would be to confound the issue, for apparently no satisfactory definition of this term can be found. Broadly speaking, sensuous beauty, or as we are justified in calling it, prettiness, is what people mean when they say that bel canto had to do with beauty of voice. It has come to be a generally recognized thing that voice, pure and simple, by its very composition, or placing, interferes with the organs of speech, making it impossible for a vocalist to preserve absolute purity of pronunciation in song as well as in speech. Footnote. The process of placing voices results too often in their being put on the shelf, where they are indeed useless. It is because of this view that the principle of vocalizing words, instead of musically saying them, crept in to the detriment of vocal art. This false position is due to the idea that the arte del bel canto encouraged mere sensuous beauty of voice rather than truth of expression. And yet, it was a very seriously pursued study, this arte del bel canto. Surely, on the face of it, bel cantists must have concerned themselves with something higher than mere sensuous beauty of voice and vocal plastics. An exact school of singing, such as the Italian can be proved to have been, would scarcely have been established for the purpose of inventing a new sort of keyed instrument. Footnote. Berlioz wittily alluded to the later and degenerate successors of true bel cantists as, quote, performers on the larynx. We learn that the Florentine reformers, in their desire to enable the dramatis personae to make a personal appeal, superseded the many voices by the one voice in opera. This very reform must have had a benign effect upon the study of the voice, making it more rational, consequently better adapted to produce truthful organs. The crux of Belcantists was the prevention of an escape of breath. Anyone who has tried knows how difficult this is, and knows also that as soon as proper control is established, the tone becomes at once correlative to the meaning of the word, articulation and diction of rare purity being finally the result. We are all aware that beauty is inherent to the Italian ideal of art. Moreover, during the 17th century, there was great musical and operatic activity in Venice, Bologna, and Milan, and the impetus given to, quote, truth of expression by Peri and other reformers when they made the vocal adaptation of the text conform to ordinary Italian speech, must have affected the teaching of bel canto which flourished in Bologna early in the 18th century. Add to this the Florentine love of color, the predisposition of Italians to long vowel singing, and the character of Cavalli's music, which was dramatic and aimed at verisimilitude, and we have, in the times which led up to those of the first bel canto schools, Elements making for truth of expression, and not for mere vocal plasticity and so-called beauty.
The men and women of those days would presumably sing like reasonable beings, and not like musical puppets, and we have seen that there was a predisposition toward truthfulness in vocal matters. Previous to the 17th century, the reform which Palestrina carried out in church music, in the kind of music which could rightly be considered suitable to public worship, had prepared the way for the necessity of musical differentiation according to subject. The work which he accomplished could not fail to bring forth fruit in the way of producing a desire for appropriate color when dealing vocally with different subjects, sacred and profane. A somewhat labored contention, it may be said, but is it so? After all, the germ of vocal efficiency lies in musical efficiency. The higher the latter, the higher the former is bound to become. It is not too much to say that, in general, the type of music will be reproduced in the type of voice it evolves. Pretense begets pretense, truth begets truth. With that into which some bel contists developed, as the years went by, we have little concern. The music which they sang, without doubt, affected their voices sensuously and made them agile. But their voices became their tyrants, and, otherwise composers like Wagner would have lived in vain, we, the vocalists of the 20th century, must not take our cue from those who still cherish as their ideal, quote, sensuous beauty and agility of voice. Footnote. It is a highly significant fact that some vocalists famed for their sensuous beauty of voice discontinue their attempts at Wagner drama after one or two trials. Our position is this. Voice must grow out of language, and singers must begin their studentship by singing thoughts. The senses must not be allowed to tyrannize over the vocalists of the future, who will, moreover, show perfect correlative beauty and absolute agility of voice resulting from linguistic, or, if you will, literary purity. The thoughtful reader has noted that we are content to appeal to nature, and to that great principle of hers in her struggle for the good of the race, vis-à-vis -vis natural selection. In intention, Belcontists were probably correct at the start. In effect, however, they fell away partly because of the class of work they were called upon to do. In our times, we are told, there is practically no bel canto. If what is nowadays designated by that term to be similar to that which is held to have been the bel canto of old, we really cannot grieve that we are in and of the 20th and not the 18th century. Artistically sane people do not now expect us to applaud as art that which belongs to the genus entertainment. But the times are young, after all, and it was perhaps worthwhile to discover how beautiful the human voice could become in itself. Now that we have duly learned that lesson, it is our privilege to begin to look upon it as the servant of the brain. This is what Wagner, and some others, have done for it. To return to our inquiry, a writer on musical subjects in Boston, USA, has claimed that the differentiation of emotions was reserved for vocalists of a day subsequent to that of the Belcantists. This is pure conjecture. These singers knew something of love, hate, pity, scorn, and the like. What kind of men and women can they have been who are assumed to have spoken and sung of love as though it were hate, of joy as though it were sorrow? Nay, 
Nature is orderly, reasonable, and unceasing in her efforts. If she cannot secure what she wants in one way, she will try another. But she is ever at work, and she makes use of all that which she finds ready to her hand. Individual man's bookmaking, day describing, and classification, useful though they be, are poor patchwork when compared to the slowly evolved mosaic of universal nature. What we must realize is that nature is always at work, nor did she stop in the days of Belcanto. True, she ought, perchance, to be making a great noise, as some of us do while at work, so that men may know that she is there. But that is not her way. Yet she is ever arranging some new branch line, whereby a new country may be opened up contiguous to that through which the main line passes. One sometimes fears that the term bel canto is in some quarters perilously near hocus-pocus. It is often used as though it were some preparation which singers apply to their voices, as ladies use unguents for their faces, to soften them. Did bel mean anything further than good when used in conjunction with canto? And even if it meant beautiful, Ought a localized meaning to be binding upon all future generations? A Britisher's or an American's sense of beauty may eventually turn out to be perhaps far higher than that of a Venetian. Even if Bell did once mean merely an agile, pretty voice, there is no need that we should be bound by inanities that are past and gone. Exact thinkers have ever looked with some amount of good-natured contempt upon musicians, upon vocalists especially because of this very pretty madness. Singers and musicians are often held by clear-headed men of affairs to be specially emotionalized creatures whose business it is to affect the nerve centers pleasantly. If someone will only give us a definition of beauty and a respectable theory of aesthetics, and then a digest of the social and religious thought tendencies of the 17th and 18th centuries, we shall be able to talk rather more definitely about Belcanto. It has already been suggested that the rapid advance in operatic compositions from Perry and Monteverdi to Purcell and Handel must have resulted in quick activity of vocal study. The melodic value of Handelian operatic airs could not fail to secure a fair share of vocal consistency and truth of expression. To the end that the music which vocalists had to deal with might be truthfully treated, the masters of the school at Bologna, around 1700, found that voices must undergo training for years on lines which have come down to us and which will be amply, though simply, described later on in this volume. Meanwhile, we shall do well to assume that, at the start of the school, the ideal was pure and that the imbecility which overtook vocalists and public later on had not begun to show itself. They were probably sane enough not to separate the phonetics of the singing voice from those of speech. Footnote. Had they done so, they would have resorted to vocalizing, and thus would have initiated an untrue art. For if the vocalizing of words be true, then is the vocal art false. It is indeed unworthy of the notice of literary and of all thinking men. When the very mastery over the voice, divorced from pure speech, became a snare, and the school of Rossini, Donizetti, and Bellini wrote down to suit the vocalizing tendencies of the day, there probably ensued a period in which the operatic bel cantists lost sight of the pure ideal they once possessed, 
and this may have given rise to the contention that vocal plasticity was the be-all and end-all of these singers. Be that as it may, our concern is with the fact that the justly famous vocalists of our world from 1700 to our day made their voices their servants instead of permitting them to become their masters, and one may reassert that it would be well to trust nature in her instinct toward betterment, and to credit bel canto vocalists with the desire for something more satisfying than mere prettiness and agility of voice. So much for what we may describe as an attempt at an a priori argument based upon natural growth in accordance with natural law. In the next chapter we shall find ourselves on still more secure ground.